Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. morning, everyone. This is Kennard speaking. I am your host for the Merciful Servants of God <clears throat> Biblical Instructional Program. Today is uh, November 19th, uh, 2011. And uh, we're going to be celebrating Thanksgiving and then the Christmas holiday. And I'm going to give my annual... Christmas uh, show. I call it my annual Christmas bashing show. And uh, giving scriptural proof and common sense proof why true believers of God shouldn't be celebrating that day. And other pagan days. Anyway, that's for a future broadcast. Uh, This broadcast is about the um, reconciliation of fathers and sons, and uh, the Elijah message uh, is going to be revealing. I know it was revealing to me when I did a Bible study on it, and um, I believe God has helped me to understand what this Elijah message is uh, really about, that the center of the message, uh, reconciliation of the family, which does begin with fathers and sons, fathers and sons, despite what people think are the leaders of society based on the scriptures. But before we get into that, I always uh, talk about what's going on in the world right now, and the United States is the leader of the world uh, economically and supposed to be morally. Well, as far as uh, the moral side of it, we're failing in that. Uh, Recently we've had reports of uh, monkey business going on in, uh, what's the name of the college, Penn State? Something like that, yeah. Uh, the guys supposedly messed around with the uh, kids and all that. And, and then I think Syracuse now, out of the blue. <clears throat> uh, they have a great basketball, college basketball tradition, and something's going on there. And in both cases, I think it's homosexual cases, right? So, you know, this country is really morally messed up. The Bible reveals that. Uh, for those who don't understand that the United States definitely has something to do with Israel, you need to go to... Um, www.britam.org, look at Yer Davidi's website that proves from biblical sources as well as secular, meaning outside of biblical or religious sources, that the United States and Britain, the countries in Northwestern Europe, uh, New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, those who claim me believe in Yeshua Messiah because he is the king of Israel, are all part of Israel. And then, of course, uh, the Bible is, is distributed in the United States and those other regions much more than any other countries in the world. 
course, uh, the little nation of Israel is included among Israel. Uh, if you look at Genesis chapter 49, um, you can just briefly go there. You'll see that all the the tribes are there. There's 12 tribes. And most people, when they think of Jews, and even the Jews themselves don't know this because they're taught incorrectly this, uh, the Jews came from the tribe of Judah. And so many Jews are incorrectly teach I don't know whether or not they realize it or not. I know some do, some don't, uh, that Abraham was a Jew. Abraham wasn't a Jew. The first Jew was Judah. Okay, uh, that was one of the uh, kids of uh, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, by the way. And so that's the, that was the first Jew. Moses wasn't the first Jew. He was a Levite. He was of the tribe of Levi, which was another son of Jacob. And... The Levites became associated with the Jews after the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. They came back along with uh, Benjamin came back, the tribe of Benjamin, some people from the tribe of Benjamin, some from, from uh, many from the Jews, from the tribe of Judah, and then, of course, the Levites, and they all became linked together as Jews. So that's the history, and then Yerah Davidi on his website, and if you want to get his books, that's up to you, but you don't have to. Uh, the Bible does say to buy the truth and sell it not, Proverbs 23, verse 23. Uh, but I, I believe that uh, Elohim or, or Yahweh or God has raised up this man, Yar Davidi, to tell the truth about who God's people really are around the world. So anyway, uh, we, we, we have not, um, over here in this country, we have not done a very good job to show the world how to handle money nor how to act. Unfortunately, uh, there's, there's a scripture that proves that. If we look at Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. This is Shaul or Paul stating this. I'm going to read this in the complete Jewish Bible version. It says, Brothers, my heart's deepest desire, Romans 10 verse 1, Brothers, my heart deepest desire and my prayer to God for Israel is for their salvation. Verse 2, For I can testify to their zeal for God, but it is not based on correct understanding. It's not based on correct understanding. Verse 3, For since they are unaware of God's way of making people righteous, what's righteousness according to the Scriptures? It's Psalm 119, verse 172, is all of God's commandments. And verse 2 again in Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 10, verse 2, rather. For I can testify to their zeal for God, but it is not based on correct understanding. For since they are unaware of God's way of making people righteous and instead seek to set up their own, they have not submitted themselves to God's way of making people righteous. And, of course, in verse 4, uh, correctly translated, because I know in the King James Version it says um, something different. It says, for the goal at which the Torah aims is the Messiah who offers righteousness to everyone who trusts. The King James Version incorrectly translates that into the, the end of the law is the Messiah. Uh, let me just read it in the King James Version here. It says, for Christ is the end of the law. So when people read that and they don't understand that some of the words in the King James Version were mistranslated, some, not all, this is one of the few that were mistranslated, um, it gives people the impression that, oh, Christ is the end of the law, we don't have to keep the law. That's why it's important to have Torah teachers like myself teach you correctly 
in situations like this, so you'll be aware. This 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 one scripture is a very popular scripture among Protestants, I guess Catholics, uh, so-called Christians, um, and they use this scripture to teach people you don't have to keep the law, you don't have to do anything. And again, um, my for some reason I don't know why, but but uh, a very popular program I've done recently. A lot of people are downloading, and I, I suggest it must have been a great program. I guess I, I don't know. I just I try to do the best I can each program, but I guess some subjects are, are more appealing to others. Uh, listen to the Yom Kippur Day of Atonement Bible study. Perhaps uh, God moved me to say something to interest people. I, I don't know, but uh, in that Bible study, I explained that Yeshua's blood is not just to erase our sins; it's also to, it's, a, it's a catalyst to help us to do good works, all right? And I, I really proved that through the scriptures in that in that Bible study, and perhaps that's the reason why people are intrigued by it. I don't know. But uh, I, I suggest that you listen to that Bible study. It'll prove to you that Christ is the goal of the law. He's not the end of the law. The goal meaning that we keep those commandments so we can become like him in character. There's a scripture also in 1 Corinthians. Let's turn there. The goal is is to is to become like him, and in other words, think like him, and and have his mind. First uh, Corinthians chapter two, verse sixteen. First Corinthians two, verse sixteen, and I'm going to read this in the complete Jewish Bible version. You can follow on whatever version you have. For who has known the mind of Adonai? That means Lord. In Hebrew, who will counsel him? But we have the mind of the Messiah. All right, so that is the overall goal, and that's what that means. Uh, the goal is the Messiah. We need to to um, keep the commandments so we can be just like him. Because after all, what did he say in John 15, verse 10? Let's, let's turn there. John 15, <clears throat> verse 10. He stated that... Uh, if you keep my commands, you will stay in my love, just as I kept my father's commands and stay in his love. So he kept his father's commandments. And you just write these scriptures down if I'm going too fast for you. You know, you, you got to, if you're struggling, trying to turn scriptures, that means you need to study the Bible more. Okay? But uh, just write the scriptures down and go over these scriptures and study them. Um, the overall goal for believers that wake up, uh, your overall goal is to become a king priest. And a king priest, uh, well, let me go, turn to Proverbs uh, 25, verse 2, so you understand what I'm talking about here. Proverbs 25, I'm going to quote this scripture a lot here, because you need to understand what you need to be doing. You're training to become a king priest. And kings and priests, particularly kings, do this. In Proverbs 25, verse 2, God gets glory from concealing things. Kings get glory from investigating things. So in order to investigate, you have to study and uh you know my goal is to influence you to uh, positively influence you to study you know i studied the bible every day and and i had to study to prepare this bible study people have a bad habit across the united states and around the world of going to the the, the synagogues or churches and just sitting and just getting spoon fed and that's it you know let me go get spoon fed next week you know you, you got to I mean, uh, let me just ask you a question as far as food is concerned, because the Bible, and God does this to try to wake you up, basically. He uses 
food as an analogy for studying God's Word. Now, do I have to feed you every day? Do I have to feed you every day? You feed yourselves, right? Do I have to go and cook a meal for you every day and spoon feed you like your little baby? No. Well, I'm feeding you right now through the Scriptures. But I shouldn't have to do this every day, and I don't do it every day. You have to take the initiative to study yourself, to get into the Scriptures, look these Scriptures up, do independent Bible study. Get uh, Go to my website, download the free Bible software that I have. Start looking up Scriptures. Start uh, looking up the original words of Scriptures that are vague to you. Start doing those things. If you need help, email me. I can show you ways to, to study the Bible. But you have to learn how to study the Bible on your own, just like you've already learned how to feed yourself. Man must not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out the mouth of God. That was in the context of the devil trying to uh, deceive Yeshua, Jesus, into uh, sinning. And, of course, you know, most of us know how to feed ourselves. Those who don't are already retarded or uh, they're incapable of feeding. They may not have arms or legs or whatever, you know, they may not, and then people have to feed them. But, uh, of course, that's a different story altogether. Same thing with uh, the Bible. Some people can't see or hear. Uh, that's an exceptional situation. There has to be exceptional cases in that. But if you could hear... Um, even seeing won't stop you from learning God's words. They have braille, you know. Uh, but you can hear though. So as long as you can hear, and then in a lot of cases too, if you can't hear, there's ways also around that. So the point of the matter is, if you have the desire to want to learn, God is going to provide a way for you to learn. And we all in this country had a desire to want to eat. But unfortunately, many of us don't have the desire to want to eat God's words or study those words and take those words seriously. So anyway, First uh, John chapter 2. Beginning in verse uh, 6, it states here, A person who claims to be continuing in union with him ought to conduct his life the way he did. If you look at the context of this, it's talking about Jesus. And we should... Uh, live our lives the way he lived his life and he lived his life keeping his father's commandments and so that's what we should do and then you know would you believe it people will argue with me about that and that's not believing those words and when you don't believe those words then it's going to be difficult for you to believe the other words of the bible um a friend of mine nelson he emailed me this um report from the associated press you can look this up on google russia has just right now put warships near Syria. They, uh, they don't want NATO to go in like they did uh, in Libya and so forth and say it's a humanitarian mission uh, to do to dominate and do their thing, basically. Okay, so, um, and then they talked about nuclear war as well. So let me see if I can find it when he emailed me here so I can read it to you. Let's see. But uh, you know, when Russia starts to <laughs> when Russia starts to move, you better take notice because Russia really is really the only country that can just blow us up ten times over, as I told my wife the other night. So we're getting closer to a nuclear war, folks. 
uh, it's a miracle that God has held it up this long. You know, we came close uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, during the, the uh, presidency of John F. Kennedy. But uh, as wicked as this world getting right now, when you have cases uh, in colleges of homosexuality among the coaches who are supposed to be leading the men properly and so forth, uh, uh, we, 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 don't, we don't have a lot of time, folks. You know, we need to wake up. We are the last generation that the Bible talked about. And we need to, to, to get our act together here. And fathers need to learn how to love their sons, and sons need to learn how to love their fathers. And that's what this Bible study is going to be about today. I don't know if I can find this story here. I get some of this stuff emailed me, and just can't find stuff. Anyway, just Google it. Russia, Russian warships, NATO, and you should find it on there. It's by the Associated Press, or, or you can go to their website as well. Then in Jerusalem, nothing really is going on in Jerusalem other than the usual. Um, Hamas is still firing missiles and so forth. It's not being, being reported in the news. But what is going on, if you go to watch.org, uh, there are rumors going on that uh, Israel is planning to attack Iran. So that's what's going on right now. And in order for this temple to be built, something has to occur. That's the way the Jews are. They really don't. That's the way any of us are, it seems to be. Most uh, we don't do what God says unless God punishes us through certain events. Let, let, let me turn to you. May think that's a weird statement, but I have a scripture to back it up. Isaiah chapter twenty-six. See, I, I, I do the best I can to prove every little statement I make out of the scriptures. Isaiah chapter twenty-six, verse nine. See. If, if any of you have been fathers or mothers, you know what I'm talking about. Kids, they just don't want to obey unless you do something. you got to either spank them or when they get older and they're too old for spanking, you got to take privileges away from them. That's when they get the message, and some still don't get it after that. You know, some some have a great tolerance level. Some, after a few Punishments get it. Some miss many punishments. Everybody has a different level of when they'll say, I give up and throw the white flag out, you know. But uh, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 9 says, My soul desires you at night. My spirit in me seeks you at dawn. For when your judgments are here on earth, the people in the world learn what righteousness is. Okay, so that's one of the reasons why God punishes is because we just don't get it any other way. We just don't get it any other way. And see, this is how wicked the world is getting, folks. This is how we, Let me just turn to Revelation here, chapter 9. I mean, this is incredible. Um, this is during the fifth trumpet uh, judgment or punishment on the earth. And you can see all this destruction that's going on here. Let me just read a little bit of it here. Um Revelation chapter 9, verse 6. In those days, people will seek but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Verse 7. Now, these locusts look like horses outfitted for battle, and their heads were look like crowns of gold, and their faces were like human faces. They had their hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like those of lions. Their chests were like iron breastplates, and the sound their wings made was like the roar of many horses and chariots rushing to battle. So this is a description of this modern 21st century uh, military technology. 
All right. Verse 10, they had tails like those of scorpions with stings, and in their tails was their power to hurt people five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in our language destroyer was another name for the devil, because that's what he is, a destroyer. Verse 12, the first woe has passed, but there are still two woes to come. The first woe is the fifth trumpet. And then verse 13 of Revelation chapter 9 and 6, angel sounded his shofar, a trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the gold altar before God, saying the sixth angel, the one with the shofar, released the four angels that are bound at the great river Euphrates, and that's near the area of Iraq today. And verse 15, and they were released, these four angels that had been kept ready for this moment, for this day, month, and year. We don't know what day, month, and year, but that's what he says. That's what it is. To kill a third of mankind. Well, what's the population of mankind right now? Seven billion people. So that's going to be a lot of people wiped out. Verse 16, and the number of Calvary soldiers was 200 million. This is another proof that this is a prophecy of the 21st century, because back in the first century, the population of the earth at that time was 200 million. So <laughs> there's no way on earth the whole world's armies are going to fight each other. So obviously this has to be a prophecy of the 21st century. And guess who has, a, I think, a 200 million man army? I think China close has quite a few people uh, in their military. All right, so... Uh, in verse 17, here is how the horses looked in the vision. The riders had breastplates that were fire red, iris blue, and sulfur yellow. The horses' heads were like lions, and from their mouths issued fire, smoke, and sulfur. So this is a, a vision of military armaments, particular nuclear bombs and other bombs. Uh, verse 18, it was these three plagues that killed a third of mankind, the fire, smoke, and sulfur issuing from the horses' mouths, military, obviously nuclear bombs and other bombs. Verse 19, for the power of the horses was in their mouths and also in their tails, for their tails were like snakes with heads, and, and with them they could cause injury. Here's John trying to describe 21st century technology. Verse 20, the rest of mankind, those, and then this is what I wanted to get to here, the rest of mankind, those who were not killed by these plagues, even then they did not turn from what they had made with their own hands. They did not stop worshiping demons. And this is what this series of Bible studies is about. Worship, well, this is not this is how you're not supposed to worship. They were worshiping demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk, worshiping money. Verse 21, nor did they turn from their murdering, their involvement with the occult, and with drugs, their sexual immorality, or their stealing. So so despite all the destruction that's going gonna happen, it's gonna be ignorant and quite frankly, stupid people that are not going to repent. That's the reason why God has to do what he has to do. We're very stubborn people. We're very stubborn people. And we just think we have a better way. And we don't have a better way. The only better way is God's way. So anyway, that's enough of the world's problems right now. And of course, um, I'm sure you're aware, if you haven't been aware of this, so you need to Google Occupy Wall Street. Uh, that's going on around the world right now. It's prophesied. And, and and people are getting upset because they finally have woke up to reality that the rich are ruling over the poor, and they're doing it in the wrong way. And God has prophesied through the prophets that uh, he will rise. Now, we don't know when, but he is rising. I know he is. But he's allowing these protests. But eventually all this is going to lead to uh, the Messiah's return. But the big event that's going to occur is going to be a war. And then 
the temple is going to be built again. Those are the two events you need to be looking at. And, of course, before those two events, there's economic uh, catastrophe worldwide. There's, um, uh, I'm trying to use a better word, uh, as far as the economy, the global economy, what's going on, inflation, is going to cause a lot of hardship, a financial hardship, financial hardship, rather, worldwide. And then, just like the Great Depression, there was a great financial depression before World War II began. That's going to happen again. That's going to happen again. Now, I can't tell you when all these things are going to happen, but the pattern is the same. Okay, so let's go over the Torah readings, and then we're going to get into the reconciliation of fathers and sons and the Elijah message. So the Torah portion today uh, is Genesis chapter 23, verse 1 to Genesis 25, verse 18. Let me just make sure I'm telling you right there. Yeah, okay. And a courtesy of Chabad.org. It says Sarah dies at 127 and is buried at the Machpelah cave in Hebron, which Abraham purchases from Ephron the Hittite for 400 shekels of silver. Abraham's uh, servant, Eleazar, is sent laden with gifts to Sharon to find a wife for Isaac. At the village well, Eleazar asked God for a sign. When the maidens come to the well, he will ask for some water to drink. The women who will offer to give his camels to drink as well shall be the one destined for his master's son. Rebekah, the daughter of Abraham's nephew, Bethuel appears at the well and passes the test. Eleazar is invited to their home where he repeats the story of the day's events. Rebekah returns to Eleazar to the land of Canaan where they encounter Isaac praying in the field. Isaac marries Rebekah, loves her, and is comforted over the loss of his mother. Abraham takes a new wife, Keturah, Hagar, and fathers six additional sons, but Isaac is destined as his only heir, Abraham dies at age 170. They think that was Hagar? That's pretty interesting to look into that. But anyway, Abraham dies at age 175 and is buried beside Sarah by his two eldest sons, Isaac and Ishmael. So, anyway. Well, that's interesting. I need to look into that. Uh, did he go back and marry uh, Hagar? <laughs> that's interesting. I need to look into that again. That is very interesting. All right, let me go back. And the Hetor section, that's a prophet section here, says this week's Hetor describes an aging King David echoing this week's Torah reading, which mentions that Abraham was old, advanced in days. King David was aging, and he was permanently cold. A young maiden, Abishag of Shonan, was recruited to serve and provide warmth for the elderly monarch. Seeing his father advancing in age, Adonihu, one of King David's sons, seized the opportunity to prepare the ground for his ascension to his father's throne and upon the, the latter's passing. This is interesting because the, uh, the Bible study today is about fathers and sons and how they both ought to treat each other with respect. Uh, this is an example of how King David, one of his sons, didn't treat King David with respect, uh, despite King David's expressed wishes that his, so his son Solomon succeed him. So, this is an example of uh, Adonahu not respecting King David's wishes, and he dishonored his father by doing this. Adonahu recruited two, or Absalom, recruited two influential individuals, the high priest and the commander of David's armies, both of whom 
had fallen out of David's good graces to champion his cause. He arranged to be transported in a chariot with 50 people running before him and invited a number of his sympathizers to a festive party where he publicizing where he publicizing his royal ambitions. The prophet Nathan encouraged Bathsheba, mother of or that's uh, Bathsheba, mother of Solomon to approach King David and plead with him to reaffirm his choice of Solomon as his successor. This she did, mentioning Adonahu's or Absalom's recent actions of which the king had been unaware. Nathan later joined the Bathsheba um, and the king to express support for Bathsheba's request. King David acceded to their request. Indeed, he told Bathsheba, as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Surely Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my stead. Surely so will I swear this day. Okay, so that's what that section is about, and then that's interesting. That's about a father and son and how they didn't get along. So um, let's go also to what is the um, Renewed Covenant Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, about how, how women should act. And this is about Sarah, so I wanted to tell you what how Peter felt about Sarah, or how God felt through Peter about Sarah. And Sarah really is an example to all women who claim, and I'm going to underscore the word claim, to believe in uh, Yeshua being a Messiah and, and so forth. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 1, in the complete Jewish Bible version, in the same way, wives, submit to your husbands. Uh, if you go and study to First Peter chapter two was talking about how Jesus uh, didn't talk back and and so forth, and uh, he uh, took his punishment and and so forth. Uh, what he's saying in the same way, wives uh, submit to your husband, not not allow your husband to beat the crap out of you, but to put up with your husband's uh, idiosyncrasies or uh, not being perfect. There's no such thing as you know. I, I've I've heard some women say, well. Uh, my husband's not perfect, so I can disrespect him and, and, and not obey him. Well, I, I don't see that anywhere in the Bible, folks. Okay? So uh, we, we're going to have to uh, learn, and this goes for, for husbands or wives, deal with idi- each, each other's idiosyncrasies. Idiosyncrasies meaning uh, unique issues. <laughs> okay? Because we all have them. Uh, it says, in the same way, wives, submit to your husband so that even if some of them do not believe the word, and, you know, I run into situations where the husbands believe in the word and these wives still have problems. So so all the more uh, you, you should respect a husband that does believe the word. But anyway, in the same way, wives, submit to your husband so that even if some of them do not believe the word, they will be won over by your conduct without you saying a thing. And that's the thing about women that, I don't know, they just don't get it. A lot of them. You know, you know God and, and righteous men are more impressed by you by your actions than what you comes out your mouth. Okay? And this scripture proves that. They will be won over by your conduct without you saying anything. Verse two, as they see your respectful and pure behavior. That's that's what is, is the important thing here. Not well, what you say, but what you do. Verse three, your beauty should not consist in externals such as fancy hairstyles, gold jewelry, whatever you wear. I and mean, a lot of women focus too much on that mess. I mean it's important to, to look nice but don't don't overemphasize that. Verse 4, rather let it be the inner character of your heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. A righteous woman has a gentle and quiet spirit. She doesn't have this 
domineering, I want to rule over a man because men mistreat me attitude. She doesn't have a feminist attitude. In God's sight, this is of great value. So what's of great value to God is the inner character of your heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. In God's sight, this is of great value. For those who claim to believe in God, well, this is what God wants you to do, women. He, he wants you to, to, to focus on having a gentle and quiet spirit. This is of great value to him. So if you claim to be a believer, you should focus on what God wants, not what you want. Verse 5, this is how the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They, didn't, they weren't focusing so much on looking pretty. They were focusing on their character, how they act. Okay, This is how the holy women, or holy means set apart, how the set-apart women of the past who put their hope in God, and this is how you put your hope in God, women, uh, used to adorn themselves and submit to their husbands. Verse 6, the way Sarah, here we go with Sarah, the way Sarah obeyed Abraham, and I don't know, a lot of women may be offended by obeying your husband, but that's what the Bible tells you to do, all right? The way Sarah obeyed Abraham, honoring him as her Lord, or that word in original Greek means master. You are her daughters if, and that's a big condition there, if, 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 you do what is right and do not succumb to fear. And then, your husbands likewise conduct your married lives with understanding. So husbands also should uh, have this attitude of uh, proper submission to their wives, and they shouldn't... Uh, browbeat their wives, and so forth. Although your wife may be weaker physically, you should respect her as a fellow heir of the gift of life. If you don't, your prayers will be blocked. Okay, so that's for the men. Uh, treat your wives with respect. You should treat your wife like a queen. And the book of Esther is really a good book for women and men to read to see how women should be treated. And how women lead under a, the authority of a man. For those women who are all focused on leading and so forth. Well, yeah, you do lead, but it's, it's a different role of leadership for women than it is for men. And the book of Esther really explains that. And also the book of Ruth. You know, there's a reason why Elohim or God chose those two books and put a woman's name on them. Obviously, women need to read those books and study those books and copy the, the, the character of those two women. So um, I'm just suggesting that you do that so you can get God's uh, suggestion on how you act. And then also in Proverbs chapter 31, you know, Rosie the Riveter, and you should type her up on Google, you need to understand that prior to the world wars, women understood that they needed to work at home they knew their place. They understood, they understood rather, that men were the leaders in society, and they didn't have a problem being led by men. It's just these these wars just tore up the family structure, and now you have women today wanting to become president of the United States. Uh, you have women that want to lead. Be, you want you have some women that desire that women. There's, there's as many CEOs uh, in these corporations that are women just as much as men. And there's a scripture in the Bible, and you may not agree with God, but God doesn't care what you don't agree with. Uh, he, he knows that what he says is right. 
But Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12 states this. It states, and this is a prophecy for the end time. And it's going on as I'm speaking. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12. My people, children oppress them. In other words, uh, families are, are not training their kids properly, and the kids are oppressing them because they don't want to do what their parents tell them to do. And women are ruling over them. You know, and I'm going to prove that today. There's a lot of families right now that don't have fathers. And the women are ruling the families instead of the other way around. My people, children oppress them and women are ruling over them. My people, your guides lead you. Who are the guides? The children and then the women. Lead you astray and obliterate the paths you should follow. Destroy the paths you should follow. So we're going to get into that today. So anyway, I wanted to point out how God felt about Sarah and how we uh, women should act. And, of course, uh, any men that are listening to this, uh, you should treat your, your your wives like queens and and women should treat uh, their husbands like kings. And then for those who doubt that society should be led by men, let me turn to the Torah again, Numbers chapter 1. Now, Israel is the prototype of mankind. So, or they are the foundation of the way mankind should be. So, uh, there were a lot of people, millions of people, in the desert, and they were gathered. Numbers is really how God organized that society. So, Numbers chapter 1, verse 2 take a census of the entire assembly of the people of Israel by clans and families. Record the names of all the men, verse 3, 20 years old and over, who are subject to military service in Israel. You and Aaron are to enumerate them company by company. Take with you from each tribe someone who is the head of a clan. Okay? So that is the structure. That is the way it should be done. And um, for those who want to argue, you can argue to God if you want to. But in, the, in verse 4 in the New American Standard Bible Version, it says, When you, with you, moreover, there shall be a man of each tribe, each one head of, the, of his father's household. Okay? So that's a clear translation of that. And if you have a problem with that, you go complain to God about it. I mean, the patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not Sarah, Rebecca, and, and Rachel. Okay? Those are the patriarchs. You know, and for women who who believe that Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel are the patriarchs, you are offending God, and God doesn't appreciate you thinking that way. All right? So let's continue on here with the Bible study. The reconciliation of fathers and sons and the Elijah message. Now, before I get into this, I encourage and highly recommend, I don't do this too often. My wife knows it. I mean, she knows that I'm not a moviegoer. But I went to go see this movie, and it just broke me into tears. If you understood my situation, you would understand why. But um, this movie is the best movie I've ever seen outside of uh, another movie I recommend you see. Uh, it's two movies. The first movie I recommend you see is The Gospel of John. And it's a word-from-word translation movie. They go exactly by the New International Version translation of the Bible, and it's it's an awesome movie, and it and it goes with the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is really a good gospel because number one, it really reveals the spirituality of the Messiah, uh, and number two, it shows you how the many conflicts that he had with the Pharisees, 
the modern Jews or uh, rabbinic Jews or Orthodox Jews of today, and, and they, they were Pharisees back then, and he had a lot of issues with them, and and uh, it shows that as well visually. Now, the second movie that I recommend you see, because it definitely has something to do with the Elijah message here. Uh, it says, "Courageous honor begins at home," which is true. Honor begins at home. And honor means respect. And it's, in, it's playing in the theaters right now, but it's probably going to be off the theaters now, basically, and they're going to do what most people do, make money off of it. So they're going to produce a DVD. And, uh, you know, you should buy the truth and sell it not, so just go ahead and get it, you know. And, and uh, I recommend every person in the world look at this movie because this movie explains what happens when the father does not lead his family. When the fathers don't lead families, the family is destroyed. And when you destroy the family, society is destroyed. And that is what's going on as I'm speaking, not only in this country, but around the world. You get some messianic preachers preaching the Elijah message. That is the Hebraic roots. True, yeah. It, it, it has something to do with that. But just as important, if not more important, it has something to do with reconciliation of fathers and sons. So you have to include that in it, too. You can't preach an incomplete... I mean, I, I'm not going to give a name, but I saw his little thing about Elijah, and then he totally didn't even talk about that. Maybe he talked about it in his other full-blown two-hour presentation, but in, in this uh, summarized version, he totally skipped over that scripture where it says the heart of the father should be turned to the sons. That is one of the most important parts of the Elijah message. Okay, so we're going to understand that here shortly. All right, so I have one hour and 18 minutes, and I think there's something wrong with uh, when you guys try to call in. For some reason, I'm not getting it or whatever, so I don't have to check with Blog Talk Radio. But uh, because of the context of this message and the seriousness of it, I'm not going to be able to accept calls today. But I'm going to allow you to do it next week, and I'm going to check with Blog Talk Radio to see what's going on with it, okay, because uh, I do appreciate your calls when you do call in. But the rule here on this program is uh, wait until I get done. I'm going to leave. Uh, I preach for about an hour and uh, 30 minutes, and then I'll, I'll open the lines 30 minutes. But not today, though. But the following next week, uh, I'll, I'll do that. And then you could uh, ask questions. Now, if you disagree with me, you want to start an argument, you know, according to the scriptures, I'm not going to do that. Okay, why don't you just email me if you have certain issues or whatever, and I'll respond. But if you are calling to uh, support the message. If you have anything to add that I'm not seeing to enhance what I'm saying, yes, I do welcome those, okay? But I, I'm not, the, the mission, my mission is not to to debate people and, and so forth. My mission is just to preach the truth out of the scriptures. And for those who, who love the scriptures and for those who want to listen to what the Bible says, you're going to love what I say. But if you, got your opinions, don't believe what the scriptures state, then, you know, I'm not the kind of person you should listen to. Go listen to someone else, you know. So, all right. Um, this is part of the series of how do we worship the most holy God, and as you're going to see, Elijah has a lot to do with the true worship of God. So I must talk about him. This has to be involved in this uh, Bible study. Now, he's a prophet, and... Many people think a prophet is somebody just predicts the future. A prophet is not just someone who predicts the future. It's also someone who 
stands up for God and preaches the true message of God. That's a prophet as well. All right, and uh, in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 28 to 29, let's go over what prophets are supposed to do, what preachers are supposed to do. And this is going to lead into talking about Elijah, who was one of the greatest prophets of all time. Jeremiah chapter 23, and Jeremiah was another prophet here. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 28, uh, 23, verse 28. I'm going to read this a complete Jewish Bible version here. If a prophet has a dream, let him tell it as a dream. So, you know, prophets do from time to time get dreams. But someone who has my word should speak my word faithfully, according to what the Bible says. What do chaff and wheat have in common, says Adonai, verse 29. And this is the scripture I want you to focus on here. Isn't my word like fire, as Adonai, like a hammer shattering rocks? When someone really preaches God's words, that's what it is. It's like fire. It's like hammer shattering rocks. It makes a difference when, when they're preaching the truth. It's going to feel that way to you. Uh, let's turn to Hebrews 4, verse 12, so you understand what I'm talking about. This is why perhaps a lot of people run away from the truth because they don't want this. They they don't want the word of God to investigate their character. They they don't want that. And yet the gospel says for us all to change, to repent. The kingdom of God is coming. Repent, repent, repent. Uh, Hebrews 4 verse 12. See, the word of God is alive. It is, it is at work and is sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts right through to where the soul meets the spirit and joints meet marrow, and it is quick to judge the inner reflections and attitudes of the heart. So that's what God's words do. And whenever you listen to any true Torah teacher, that's the way, I mean, when, when they're preaching, you should be uh, getting cut up. You know, it should inspire you to want to change. That's what it should do. And if you're not getting that, if you just listen to somebody and make it feel good, <laughs> you know, that's you, you're not really getting the true words of God preached to you. Because we all got some issues. We got to change. I'm not saying God's word should motivate you and make you happy. What I'm saying is that if 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 you think the purpose of listening to a preacher is just to make you happy and bounce up and down and just have fun, uh, and, and and you're not learning something to help you change, then there's something wrong with what you're listening to. If that's all you're listening to, it's just prophecy, just like Harold Camping, prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. The world's going to come to an end. Prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. I mean, what are you learning, you know? The world's going to come to an end, you know? What, what is that? I mean, what was that going to do for you? I mean, is that helping the poor? You know, is that helping you care about people? The world's going to come to an end? You know, what is that doing for you, you know? So so you, you have to, to be able to understand what, Again, the basic doctrines of God are, which is in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 to 2. And one of the first doctrines of God is repentance from dead works. God wants us to have alive works. 
the antithesis of that is alive, or the opposite of that is alive works. Not dead works, works that he's not really impressed by, you know? So uh, that's the reason why also the Messiah, let me turn to Scripture again, Hebrews chapter 9. And as you see, Elijah was a very giving prophet. Hebrews 9, verse 14. Well, actually, let me go 13 so you can understand the context. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. For it is sprinkling ceremonially unclean persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer restores their outward purity. So the the offerings back in the days of Moshe and when the temple was uh, built, all it did was purge your physical body so that you can appear before God. That's all it did. However, it didn't do this. In verse 14, Then how much more the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God as a sacrifice without blemish, will purify our conscience from works that lead to death so we can serve the living God. Okay? So those offerings before Christ offered himself did not purge your conscience. All it did was purge your body, your, your physical body, cleansed it so that you can appear before God. Remember that and Moshe, uh, God through Moshe told the Israelites to wash themselves? Okay? So that's, that's really all it did. It did not uh, purge that mind to stop sinning. The sacrifice of uh, Christ did that because... Through his sacrifice, we were able to receive the Holy Spirit. The whole world was able to receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the only thing that can cleanse your mind and, and to it's really the only thing that's going to make you perfect. So anyway, all right, so uh, I just wanted to, to, to help you to understand when I read the prophetic messages or scriptures that that's what it should be doing to you. It should be motivating you to want to change and be a better person. And his and his and his words are like what does it say? Shattering rocks. Okay, that's the way it should be. It should change things. When you shatter a rock, that rock's composition is changed, right? So he's using that as an he uses analogies a lot to help to, to help uh, to compel us to think, to use our brains properly. You know, he said, "Isn't my word like fire?" Says Adonai, like a hammer shattering rocks. That's that's what it should be. All right, so let's get to let me see. Hopefully, I can get this all done here. It's a lot of material I have to go to. Um, the first Elijah. Let's let's get a preview of what he did and what his mission was. Um, let's turn to First Kings, chapter seventeen. First Kings, chapter seventeen. I'm going to read this in uh, the English Standard Version here. First Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbit, a Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, Ahab rather, who was one of the most wicked kings of Israel, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So this is interesting here that... Um, in the context of the first Elijah, there was a great famine. And uh, in verse 2, it says, And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook 
Cherif, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So let's understand in the context of the first Elijah, <clears throat> number one, there was a famine <clears throat> for three and a half years. <clears throat> and also Elijah was uh, miraculously um, protected and fed, which is interesting. Let's turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, starting in verse uh, 17. James chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So that's how powerful Elijah was. I mean, that's how close he was that God answered his prayer in reference to that. And in verse 19 of James chapter 5, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, and that's what Elijah, that's what he was trying to do, as you're going to see here. He he was a, a prophet of truth, and he had a very powerful message to, to obey the true God instead of false gods. And verse 20, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So that's in the context of Elijah as well. <clears throat> now, Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 1. So you, you look at the original story of Elijah. Uh, for three and a half years, there was no rain. Um which means that uh, there was a great famine. He was protected miraculously, right? And it's in the and in Elijah's message so far, you understand that it has something to do with truth. All right. So Revelation chapter eleven, verse one. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, "Rise and measure the temple of God." So this book of Revelation was written for the twenty-first century. Because uh, hold your place here and turn to Revelation chapter one. Verse 10, it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It's not talking about Sunday, but it's talking about the day of the Lord. And I heard behind me a, a, a loud voice like a trumpet. And then in verse 19, it states, Write therefore the things that you have seen and those that are and those that are to take place after this. So so he wrote of the future in, in the context, or he was taken in vision, uh, to the uh, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, which is the actual day that Christ is going to land his feet on the Mount of Olives, okay, and and the preceding events that's going to lead to that. So, turning back to Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 1, it says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Okay, so here we go again with the concept of worship that... That the temple is linked with worship, worshiping the true God. And this, again, the, the book of Revelation is for the 21st century. So in verse 1, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and that, that and you look at Ezekiel chapter 40, uh, that is also giving you an indication that that's talking about a structure that's built. All right, I don't hear anyone else preaching that. I mean, I, I haven't heard it yet, you know. 
Anyway, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God, meaning the structure is already completed, is already built, and the altar and those who worship there. And you have some people preaching falsely, incorrectly, I don't care what they're using, they're not going by the scriptures, uh, that there's only going to be an altar or a tabernacle. This scripture tells you that there's going to be a temple of God. Okay? Um, verse 2, but what time period is this talking about? Well, verse 2 tells you. But do not measure the court outside the temple, not a tabernacle, a temple. Let me look at this word up in the original Greek, because I doubt if it's saying tabernacle. No, temple. It's temple. That's what the word means in the Greek. Verse 2, but, I'm reading this in the English Standard Version, but do not measure the court outside the temple, that's the, the court of the Gentiles, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. 42 months. Now, where else in the Bible does it talk about 42 months? And if we can combine the 42 months, where else it talks about in the Bible in 42 months, you understand what the time period is talking about. So you go to Revelation chapter 13. And it talks about the beast. All right? That's the context. And how long will the beast rule? Revelation 13, verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So we know that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot for 42 months, and we know that the beast will rule for 42 months. Those two events are synonymous together. Okay? So when we go to Luke chapter 21, Then you understand that this is talking about the Great Tribulation. Luke chapter 21, verse 20. Now remember, let's get the facts. It's talking about uh, the temple. It's talking about Jerusalem being trampled down of the Gentiles for 42 months. We, we understand Revelation 13, verse 5 states that the beast will rule for 42 months. Okay? Now, this fills in all the rest of the details. Luke chapter 21, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea, that's the West Bank, flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter in. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for the women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the earth, and the King James says, "Great." Uh, it says, uh, "The great tribulation upon the earth and wrath against his people." Now, verse twenty-four is the key verse here. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So this is talking about that same forty-two month period that is revealed in the book of Revelation. Verse 2, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. The whole entire city is going to be trampled, not half of it, the entire city. Okay? And, go, and turn back to Luke again. Chapter 21, verse 24. It says the same thing. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So that 42 months is talking about, that's talking about what's going to happen within those 42 months. 
That's pretty clear if you want to believe what the scriptures say. But if you have your own opinions, you're not going to understand it. Now, in verse 3, what happens at this time? And, and is a continuation of what he was saying, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy, not 42 months, but 1,260 days, which is equivalent to 42 months. Okay? And these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. So just like Elijah was miraculously protected during his time when he was preaching, he prayed that God would cause a famine on the earth for three and a half years. And also God protected him during that period of time. Um, in verse 6, they have power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. So there's going to be a famine existing while the two witnesses are prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. The two witnesses will be prophesying in the spirit and power of Elijah. Verse 7, and when they have finished their testimony, at the end of their testimony is the end of the 42 months of the 1,260 days. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord, where our Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, not years, many people say, well, that I, I don't care what God's word said, that says years. The church father said that. Well, I don't care what the church father says. The Bible says three and a half days, all right? So for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. Why would God allow dead bodies to, to, to exist for three and a half years? Okay, let's, let's use our common sense, all right? Verse 10, And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. And you're going to understand that because King Ahab called Elijah an enemy of his, and uh, he said that... Uh, he says some negative things to him. I think I'm on the lines of, of tormenting him, you know. So that's interesting. But anyway, verse 11. This, and this shows you here the, the truth of God, even during this period. Many people in the world are not going to accept it. For them to be jumping up and down because these two prophets told them the truth. That tells you the mental state of most people in the world. In verse 10, Revelation 11, verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on earth. They think the truth of God is a torment to these people. That, that's how sick they are. Anyway, verse 11. But after the three and a half days, not years, a breath of life from God entered into them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went to heaven, not the sky, heaven. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in verse 13, And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And that's interesting because uh, you remember in Elijah, he thought he was by himself, and there was seven. he said there were seven thousand people that did not uh, kneel before Baal, which is pretty interesting. Anyway, seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed, 
which was the sixth trumpet. So all this occurs, the death of the two witnesses, uh, all that occurs during the sixth trumpet. So the second woe was past. Behold, the third woe was soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. All right, so after the two witnesses die, that's the end of the 42-month period, or 1,260-day period, it's the same period, same time period. And there's even a Jewish wisdom that states that Elijah uh, is, is going to be existing at the time of the resurrection. All right, verse 16, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Worship again uh, is in, in the context here. Verse 17, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And verse 18, and here we go again with most people in the world acting crazy. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and a time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and for those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So he's going to be destroying the destroyers of the earth. And this is symbolic, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was open. In other words, God is not hiding himself from people anymore. He want, He's welcoming you, anyone, to visit him. And the Ark of the Covenant was seen with his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. And then in this wonderful book that I suggest you get, it's called The Messiah Text, Jewish Legends of 3,000 Years by Raphael Pataya, I guess, how you pronounce his name. And um, it states here about Elijah here in terms of the resurrection. I just read it here. Okay. Okay. Uh, on page 143, it says, The resurrection of the dead will come through Elijah of blessed memory. It says, The resurrection of the dead will bring about the coming of Elijah of blessed memory. So they understood that Elijah coming uh, has something to do also with the uh, the resurrection. All right, so let's get, let's get back to the story of Elijah here. First uh, Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 16. All right, so in the English Standard Version of the Bible, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And and when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? So Elijah was considered a troubler of Israel. <laughs> Verse 18. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Okay. Now, when you understand his message, it has something to do with the fathers, turning the fathers hearts back to the sons. And already he's talking about father in this verse here, in verse 18. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals, which is symbolic of worshiping other gods. Okay? Verse 19. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. These are all false prophets who eat at Jezebel's table who... 
I think Je- Jezebel, she wasn't the most wicked woman on the earth. She was one of them, okay? Because uh, Yeshua even uses her example of, uh, of uh, in the end times, uh, and then during the time, during the first century and carrying up into today, the kind of women that you should not follow. Jezebel is an example of that. Uh, verse 20. And so these prophets were eating at Jezebel's table, and of course she was leading these prophets. Verse 20. And then so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. In verse 21, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? <laughs> if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So the Elijah message is about the truth. He represents the true God. And anyone who supports his message represents the true God. Okay? Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. You know, God's true prophets and preachers, there's not too many of them in this world, folks. And you're going to get plenty of other people claiming that they're true preachers and they preach the truth and all that, and yet they're sucking your money up, asking you to give them contributions. So, so you have to be able to tell the difference between the two. Verse 23, let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Now remember I told you that God's word is like fire, right? It's like fire. And see... I want you to notice something here. He's using the sacrifices again. This is on an altar that has something to do with worship again, right? Here we go again. It's even linked with the Elijah message, and it's linked with Elijah. And he's using the the sacrifices on an altar to prove the true God. Verse 25. The Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull prepared first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, and it was righteous mocking, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. This is ridiculous. There's a bunch of monkey business going around cutting each other, trying to bring a false god to uh, to the surface. Verse 19, and as midday passed, that's 12 o'clock, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he re- Repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, that represents uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. So, so here you have the altar, and you have these 12 stones. This is symbolic that the nations of Israel should be preaching the Elijah message and should be obeying what Elijah taught. Okay? King, 1 Kings 18, verse 32, And the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench 
about the altar. So with the stones, okay, that's a correction there. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. With those 12 stones, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sets of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it in the, in the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and, and Israel. So this is interesting. Not only did he talk about oh Israel, Israel meaning Jacob, okay. Oh, oh, Lord, of, oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, because remember Jacob's name was changed to Israel. That's the first time I ever recognized that. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. So remember, when he talks about the patriarchs, we got to remember that Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So, so Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. So God is with Israel. He's even with the 12 tribes today, despite themselves. Okay? Anyway. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Here we go. Turn their hearts back. What is the Elijah message again about? Turning hearts back. Okay? Verse 38 of Kings, chapter 18. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their face and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Okay? I'm not going to read the rest of it, but I just wanted to make a point there about Elijah and his message and what he was doing. Now, let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 21, beginning in verse 17. And then he had a conversation with uh, that wicked king Ahab again. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah to teach beat, saying, Tishbite, rather, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the ten tribes at that time, the ten tribes of Israel. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where your dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Here we go again. You have the king of uh, Israel calling Elijah a troublemaker and calling him evil. All because he's preaching the truth of God. When I preach the Elijah message, the true message, and, and with anyone else, we're going to be considered enemies and we're going to be considered troublemakers because they don't want to hear it. All right, so verse 21, most people don't want to hear that message. It's a message of reconciliation, and the devil doesn't want reconciliation. <laughs> he wants destruction. All right, anyway, verse 20. He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 21, behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. So God was extremely angry at Ahab here, understandably, allowing Jezebel to control and rule him and... and killed the Lord's prophets and have her own false prophets eat at her table. Verse 22, And I will make your house like the house of Jer Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, uh, for the anger to which you have provoked me 
and because you have made Israel to sin. So here we go again. Leadership can cause and influence people to sin if it's the wrong type. Just like righteous leadership can cause people to stop sinning. Verse 23, and, and of Jezebel, the Lord also says, the dog shall eat Jezebel, and that's what they did, literally eat her, within the walls of Jezreel. Verse 24, anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. Verse 25, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whose Jezebel, his wife, incited. So this was a very wicked king, and his wife was a very wicked person. Verse 26, he acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Verse 27, and when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fastened and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. So here we go again. The natural tendency is when, when, <laughs> when man realizes that he's going to get it, he starts to repent. Hold your place here. I want you to, to look at Job here because the devil knows this. See, The devil knows. He's a very smart being, and he knows how we are. And in Job chapter 1, Job chapter 1, verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Verse 10. You have, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Verse 11. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. <laughs> so, so he did that. But that didn't work either, okay? So Job did not talk back to God. He, he he still worshiped God. So in chapter 2, and then the Lord challenged Hasatan or Satan again in verse 2 of Job. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, or Satan Answer the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down in. And that's what he's doing today, folks. He's walking on down, uh, destroying and doing whatever he wants to do. All right? Verse 3. I mean, within constraints, of course. But uh, Verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without, without a reason. Or without reason. Now, this is where I wanted to get that. This is where most human beings start to fall. Job 2, verse 4. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Okay? And God knows that. God knows that when we start to hurt, then that gets our attention. And the devil knows that as well. So I just wanted to point that out. So back to First uh, Kings chapter 21. Okay, verse 17. Uh, where was I here? Yeah, verse 28 of First Kings chapter 21. And the word... 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 28, 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 28, and 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 28. Say it three times. 
And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, verse 29, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. So even the wicked Ahab, God had mercy on him because he knew that his flesh was going to be touched. He didn't like that. you know. So he started to repent, see. So that's the way we are. All right, Malachi chapter 3. Let's turn there. This time I have to just uh, probably do the rest of this next week. Malachi chapter 3. Reading this in the English Standard Version Bible for clarity's sake here. And then I have to read this whole thing because we, we have to understand the Elijah's message here. We're going to start talking about Yochanan, the immerser of John the Baptist here shortly. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, uh, a, a rebuilt temple, not a tabernacle. Uh, that's what that's saying here. Yep, it's not a tabernacle, it's a temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a filler's soap. Here we go again with description of God's word, and in this sense it's talking about the word of God, the Messiah. He's like fire. He's a consuming fire. Okay. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, or Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings. Here we go again. Offerings, the temple, sacrifices. The Elijah message has everything to do with the temple. I was trying to preach this to these people that they have no clue, hardly, about the Bible, and, and they just totally throw me out of their presence, basically, because I was preaching the truth. If they would have shut up, and I mean shut up, and listen to what I was saying, they would understand that I know what I'm talking about. Anyway, uh, verse 3, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. In the context of worship again. Verse 4, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the former years. So as you're going to see, the Elijah message has, yes, it has something to do with Hebraic roots. I don't deny that, okay? Hebraic roots really has something to do with obeying all the laws of God. That is Hebraic. <laughs> the fact that you must obey all the commandments of God, that's Hebraic in itself. That you must obey the law of Moses, which is the law of God. Yes, that is a part of the Elijah message. But also a part of the Elijah message is that we must give, that we must give and share. Remember, Elijah is the forerunner to the Messiah. He leads you to the Messiah. The Messiah taught that we must give and share our possessions with mankind. That's what the Elijah message, which is, which is really God's message to mankind. Okay? And as you're going to see, the fathers are primarily responsible for teaching the children, both the sons and the daughters. But the son is the leader. The daughter is not a leader, not in the sense that a son is, okay? And the son should take over uh, in the sense of having his own family and being a father too. And is supposed to carry on from generation to generation. 
But if the fathers aren't being taught the Torah, not being taught the teachings of God properly, how can the family act properly and how can society act properly? That is the center of the Elijah message. It's, it's a message of reconciliation. Even the Jews understand that. All right? Verse 4, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. That's why every Passover Seder, they have a cup out for Elijah. They, want, they know this world is wicked. They, they want reconciliation between all fathers and sons, not just Jewish fathers and sons, worldwide. They know that Elijah is going to bring peace. My, the symbol... One of the symbols that I use for my ministry is a symbol of a dove with a branch. That's the that's peace symbol. I didn't know it had anything to do with Elijah, though, until recently. But I guess that's, you know, when, when God is using somebody, he inspires you to do things, I guess. So, so anyway, verse 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. What is going around the world right now? What is going on around the world right now? People are uh, very upset because they know they've been oppressed in their wages worldwide. That's why I know the Messiah is coming soon because that's one of the characteristics of the world that's going to cause them to come. The widow and the fatherless. Here we go again. The fatherless. There's hardly any fathers in the world right now that are teaching their children the true God. I used to look at that word fatherless and, you know, the poor, but now I understand it better. There, there's not too many families that are led by strong fathers. And that's why he's so concerned about the widow and the fatherless. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. And that's, that's a good statement there because, you know, many people think the Lord has changed. Well, you know, Paul meant that for these times. Uh, it's, not that meant, it's not meant for us today. Garbage. But God says that he does not change. Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God, who was the God of the Old Testament, okay, uh, because in, in, in John chapter 1, he said no one has seen God. No one has seen God the Father, so that had to be him. Okay, he was, He's God's representative. He's the captain of the Lord's army. All right. And in Malachi 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So he's telling you that if he did change, all of Israel would be consumed, and the whole world would be consumed. So we better thank God he doesn't change. <laughs> Verse 7, here we go again. Fathers, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. And one of the reasons why is because the fathers failed in their responsibility, as you're going to find out here, to teach the law. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Well, this is one of the ways that you shall return, of the many. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. So even back then, the people weren't giving like they should. And I can tell you from my own experience, as a true servant of God, God's people do not really give like they should. They only give when they think they're going to get something back, most of them. I'm not saying all of them, okay? But the majority, they only give 
when they're reminded repeatedly over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, these I know some ministers, uh, they they sell their stuff because they know the people aren't going to give to them, you know. And I try to teach these ministers not to do that, that you need to distrust God, get your job like Yeshua and the apostles had. If you if you think I don't know what I'm talking about, read my article, Tithes and Offerings, on my website. I prove scripturally that Yeshua was a carpenter, and he worked while he was preaching still. And the apostles worked while they were preaching. And the rabbis had a secular occupation while they were preaching. The concept of a minister laying back and depending on the people to give them money is nowhere found in the scriptures. Although it's found in history, and it's linked with capitalism. But what did Yeshua state in, in Matthew chapter 6? God and mammon, or money, does not mix. And that's what we're doing. We're trying to mix ministry with money. It does not mix. It does not work. And because of that mixture, you have to listen to one Torah teacher after the next to get some aspect of the truth. Hardly any has, has a, a good general understanding of all the truth. And, and, and a big major reason of that is because they're selling their stuff which the scriptures state that you should not do. Okay? Anyway, um, verse 9, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tie into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and you and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. So he's going to provide you not riches, but uh, what you need to survive. That's what he's going to promise to do. And many people look at that and say, oh, he's going to give me a Mercedes Benz if I get his minister. No, he's not going to. No, that's not what it's saying. It's talking about uh, giving you what you need. He's talking about opening the windows of heaven. He's talking about rain. You'll get the proper rain that you need to grow the proper food so you can feed yourself. That's what he's talking about, food and water. Verse 12. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So that's one way that we can repent uh, with the Elijah Meshes context, is to give to, you, to, uh, to folks like me, to other people that you know that are preaching the truth. That's one way that you repent. But I don't talk about this that often, but this is a part of the Elijah message. I, I'm not going around advertising, gimme, 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 because I have a job <laughs> and I work. So I'm not depending on people to support me and pay my rent and all this other stuff. You know, the Bible says you should live by the gospel, preachers, but how do you live by the gospel? Does it say get rich by the gospel? No. I mean, if, if, if I'm going to start visiting people's homes, and, you know, I did in my email state in my meetup thing, my meetup uh, website that I have, that uh, if you want to give, that's up to you, but I'm not going to continue to remind you over and over and over again. I'm not going to charge from, uh, for any literature or DVDs I may produce. Uh, Right now, you're listening to my message for free, and you know if you want to give, that's fine. But I'm not going to. I'm going to preach occasionally, like Paul did, that you should give. But if you don't want to give cheerfully, I don't want. I don't want to accept any uh, contributions from you. If you don't want to give cheerfully, if you feel grudge, you know, well, I'm gonna just do it anyway. Now, if you don't feel cheerful about giving, don't give. I don't need your contributions. And you know, and I'm not a 501c3 organization. Uh, so if if you want to give to me to get to receive a tax deduction, don't give to me. You know, that 501c3 is a deception of the devil, and it influences ministries to think they have to be under 501c designation to receive contributions. You don't. You don't. For a church or a ministry, you do not have to have a 501c3. 
you don't believe me, go and Google hushmoney.org and find out for yourself. Hush, H-U-S-H, money.org, and find out the truth about the 501c3 and the deception it has caused upon many churches and ministries to focus totally, to shut them up, and to focus totally on, because whenever a minister, most ministers, uh, maybe they don't realize that when they're thinking about 501c3, they're thinking about getting money from the people. Okay? And they're, what they're do, really doing is teaching the people to give and to expect something back. And that's not how you give. When you give, you shouldn't expect anything back other than from the Lord. But even in that sense, you ought to be mature enough to just give because God gives us and doesn't really expect anything back other than our obedience towards him, which he should expect back. But anyway, and the Bible says we don't owe any any of us anything other than love. And what is love? Keeping the commandments. Romans 13, verse 10. Love is keeping the commandments. Anyway, verse 13 of Malachi chapter 3. Your words have been hard against me, said the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve the Lord. Many people say it's vain to serve the Lord because we have to give, right? What is the profit of our keeping his charge of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Verse 15, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And in verse 17 of Malachi, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Verse 18. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Again, this is in the context of the Elijah message again. The distinction between the righteous and the wicked. That message will help you to determine who is righteous and who is wicked, and those who serve God and those who do not serve him. <clears throat> Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming. It's talking about the literal day when Yeshua lands his feet on the Mount of Olives across from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about one, two, three, four, five years. It's talking about the day of his coming. Burning, and that day is in the context of burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will lead them neither root nor branch. So, I tell you, if you're wicked and you're alive at this time, you're going to be burnt to a crisp. That's what he's saying. And that's what Elijah, as you see, John the Baptist talked about, being burnt into the fire. Verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. He's talking about, again, the time when he lands his feet on the Mount of Olives. Verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. So, yes, Hebraic roots, which has something, has a lot to do with obeying the entire laws of God that are summarized in, in Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5, and also many of them revealed in the summary form in Leviticus chapter 19. Okay? Verse 5, Malachi 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before what? The great and awesome day of the Lord comes, 
or the terrible day of the Lord. Verse 6, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers. Turn, turn. What does that word turn mean in original Hebrew? It means uh, shob, and it means to turn back. It means to turn back, fetch home again. Okay? That's what it means. And back here, uh, and he will turn the hearts of the the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers that not I come and strike the land. That's a bad translation. It should be the earth with a degree of utter destruction. Utter destruction. In the uh, scriptures, 1998 version, and she'll turn, he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers that not I come and smite the earth with utter destruction. Now you really understand this, uh, the Elijah message has to be preached because if it's not, all families will be destroyed. That's what he's saying. If fathers are not raising their children properly, if they're not teaching their wives properly, if they're not leading their wives properly, all of society will be destroyed. That's the reason why this message has to be preached. Okay? And I support this message, and I preach the message. And I'm sure there's a few others that do. As well, at least I hope they are. I hope they're out there somewhere. Okay, where am I now? Okay, let's turn to Luke chapter one, verse seventeen. Luke chapter one, verse seventeen. Reading is in the English Standard Version of the Bible here. Well, let me start in verse 13. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 13. Luke chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. And this is interesting because we have a whole book prophetic book called Zechariah, and the context is the what again? The temple, right? All right, but the angel said to them, do not, and then, you know, Zechariah was a priest. <laughs> okay, here we go. Okay, you can't run away from the temple, and people want to run away from temple worship. It's ridiculous. Anyway, Luke 1, verse 13, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Yochanan, or John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So if you receive the Elijah message, it should give you joy and gladness. It really should. It gave me joy and gladness, and it continues to do so. Verse 13, for he will be great before the Lord. And he, see, he's great before the Lord. He may not be great among anyone else, but he's great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he was filled through the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. John, verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord, their God. So this message at first, uh, in the end time, will not turn many from God, but eventually that's the overall goal. And you look at Revelation chapter 7, obviously that's what it did, turn many to God. Verse 17, and he will go 
before him in the spirit. He's not Elijah, but he's in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So what are three things that this Elijah will do? He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. There will be reconciliation between fathers and their children or sons. Number two, he's going to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. What's the wisdom of the just? Is the commandments, God's teachings. That's the wisdom that is talked about there. And number three, he's going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So those are the three things that the Elijah will do. All right? Verse 18, and Zechariah, okay, that's that's something else there. We need to focus on that. Now, I want to read to you what Gil said about this particular scripture here. Now, Gil, John Gill, I know many people don't know who John Gill is. Uh, he knew Hebrew, and he understood all the Jewish uh, writings, and I use him constantly because a lot of what he says makes sense in the commentary. Sometimes he's going off track, but... A lot of what he said makes sense, so I'm going to quote from what he said here. And uh, the heart of the children to their fathers, with some understand of his turning the degenerate offspring of the Jews to the sentiments of their forefathers and causing them to agree with them and their notions of the Messiah, others of the turning of the Jews to Christ and his apostles and others of his being a means through his ministry of baptism re reconciling the Jews and Gentiles together, which is the great business of the gospel dispensation ushered in by John and who preached that all men should believe in Christ and baptized publicans and Roman soldiers as well as Jews and so forth. All right, and it says, Elijah comes to defile and to cleanse, to pronounce what things are clean or unclean, and to remove afar off and to bring near, to determine what families are legitimate or illegitimate. Our Simeon says, to compose differences, and the wise men say, neither to remove nor to bring, but to make peace. So Elijah is centered around peace. That's what his message is all about, peace in the world. As it is said, behold, I send you Elijah the prophet, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the sons, and so forth. But the true meaning is that John the Baptist, who is meant by Elijah, should be an instrument of turning fathers with their children and children with their fathers to the Lord, that he should be means of converting both fathers and children, one as well as another, and to gather persons of every age and station for the particle which we rendered Two is the same as with, as kimchi on the text observes, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, by the disobedient are meant either Jews or Gentiles, some understanding of Gentiles who were children of disobedience before the light of the gospel came among them, but rather the former are meant who were disobedient, rebellious, and gainsaying people who were gone off from the wisdom, knowledge, and religion of the just or righteous ones, their forefathers, who prophesied of Christ, rejoiced to see his day, longed for him, and believed in him. Now John was to be an instrument of turning some of the unbelieving Jews to the true knowledge of salvation by Christ. What did Paul say in Romans 1, verse 16? The gospel is for the Jew first, right? That's what he said. And then the Gentile, right? To the true knowledge of salvation by Christ, which their righteous um, individuals waited for, had a right knowledge of and of interest in and of leading them either into the gospel of Christ, that wisdom of God is a mystery, the manifold wisdom of God in which he has abounded in all wisdom and prudence, and which the righteous men among the Jews search diligently unto and to attain some knowledge of, and which even the holy angels desire to look into. Okay. So that's that's his take on the Elijah. All right. Let's look at other 
people and what they have said. In the Rashi commentary, Rashi was one of the greatest Jewish scribes of all time. And a lot of times he does make sense, and that's why I quote from his commentary. Now, in Malachi 4, verse 6, he states that he may turn the heart of the fathers back through the children, which is interesting, and the heart of the children back through their fathers, that night I come and smite the earth with utter destruction, that he may turn the heart of the fathers back to the Holy One, blessed be he, through the children, through the children, literally, he will say to the children affectionately and appeasingly, Go and speak to your fathers to adopt the ways of the omnipresent. So Rashi understood this for this Elijah, whoever he is, and, and the group of people that's going to be preaching these messages, these messages, they would tell the sons to go to their fathers and, and, in a respectful way and, and try to encourage their fathers to to uh, acknowledge the true God. So we explain in the heart of the children through their fathers. This I heard in the name of Rabbi Menahem, but our sages expounded upon it in tractate that he will come to make peace in the world. Again, Elijah is coming to make peace, true peace. What is true peace is not just people not fighting. True peace is people getting along within their families, in their home, in society. That's true peace. Peace is having everything you need to, to better yourself and to better other people and to be a, a valuable contribution to society. We don't have that kind of peace in the world. And then let's turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Starting in 165. Great peace have those who love your law. The reason why there's no hardly any peace, let alone great peace in this world, is because people don't love the law of Moses. They don't love the law of God. What, what, what did I just read in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 to 6? Remember the law of Moses, my servant. That's God talking to you. And we don't want to remember the law of Moses. We think it's nailed to the cross. And many Christians, they don't even realize they're keeping a lot of the law of Moses. They don't even know it. Anyway, Psalm 119, verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. And Psalm 119, verse 166. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and do your commandments. So if you truly hope for salvation, you will be trying to keep the commandments. Plain and simple as that. So anyway, that's what Rashi thought. Now, also the Jewish uh, Publication Society commentary says this about the scripture of Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. He shall re reconcile parents with children. So that's a part of the Elijah's responsibility is to reconcile parents with children. The language is difficult and ambiguous. The act of reconciliation is literally restore the heart. Restore the heart. But the preposition Al leaves open rather the prophet envisioned the reconciliation of parents with their children or along with them. Okay? In the first case, the divine wrath would be forestalled by intergenerational reconciliation. In the other, all members of that time, both generations, would be restored to God. The double action in verse 24a suggests to, seems to suggest that Elijah will work to bring harmony between the generations reciprocally, but this formulation may simply be 
rhetorical flourish. On either reading, events on a family level bring to a, a climax the figure of divine human father child relations found elsewhere in the book. Malachi 1, verse 6, Malachi 3, verse 17. Healing between parents and children is thus part of the nation's reconciliation with their God, and the textual ambiguity embeds a profound and double edged point. Okay? So, this is the important message of the Elijah, which I don't... Do you hear this message being preached? I I, I really don't. I, I hear a bunch of other stuff that's important, but not as important as the fathers uh, being reconciled to their sons and the sons being reconciled to their fathers. Case in point, I'm going to look at this article here, The Fatherless Family, uh, done by Focus on the Family. Do a Google search on this. This was by Jim Daly, 2006. It says... It may not be typical to begin a letter by quoting a famous English playwright, but I believe, well, actually, uh, the English playwright that he quoted was William Shakespeare. It is a wise father that knows his own son. That was uh, a quote from William Shakespeare. He says, but I believe the above statement holds some relevance to the subject at hand. As we begin a new year, and this was back in 2006, I'd like to spend a few minutes addressing the issue of fatherlessness, fatherder, fatherlessness, which has become an increasingly difficult problem in our culture. As many of you already know, Dr. Dobson has written for years about the importance of the traditional family and especially the critical role that fathers play in the lives of young children. But just how widespread is this problem? Sadly, the answer to this question is discouraging. In fact, the United States leads the world in fatherless families with roughly 24 million children or 34% of all kids in the United States living in homes where the father does not reside. Nearly 40% of children in father-absent homes have not seen their dad during the past year, and more than half of all fatherless children have never been in their dad's home. No wonder he stresses that pure religion, an orphan is someone who's fatherless, right? That part of pure religion is visiting the fatherless. That's the reason why he focused so much on that. Because he prophesied, and it's true, that there's many families worldwide that don't have fathers. And even the ones that do have fathers don't teach their kids properly. And that is what's contributing to the destruction of society. That's why we have in the news about coaches uh, having sex with little boys. Where do you think that came from? Incorrect teachings. The family influences society. How do I know that? Duh, when you go out the house, you in society, right? So if you don't have proper training in the house, you're going to affect everyone else when you go outside the house. That's the reason why the training has to be done in the house first. Because when you go out the house, and if you have incorrect training, you're going to influence everybody else negatively. I hope I'm making myself as clear as I can. Emma? Okay, I'm just trying to make sure. All right. And more than half of all fathers' children have never been in their dad's home. That's sad. The number of children being raised by single mothers is more than tripled between 1960 and the year 2000. All right, so that's sad, folks. That's the reason why God talks about that we should I guess it was a problem back then, uh, during the days of Moses, but it's definitely prophesied to be a huge problem in the end times. Because in Malachi 3, verse 5, it says so. It says so. 
And currently, based on the latest uh, Census Bureau report, a female household or no husband present, family household, there's 14,998,476 households with no father. With no father. No father. And the households with children under 18 years of age is 8.5 million. That's a lot of kids with no fathers. It's one out of four. Every one out of four families don't have fathers. That's sad. No wonder this world is on the brink of destruction when you have that. So that's what the Elijah message is about, folks. It's about reconciliation. Uh, In these remaining minutes, I want to go through some key scriptures here. Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm going to read this scripture here. And, you know, some fathers, they just don't understand that they have to encourage their children. And this movie is called Courageous. That's the opposite of discouragement. All right? Uh, Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Now, parents, understand that children are only required to obey you if you are obeying God. If you're telling your parents, uh, parents, if you're telling your children to do something wicked, they are commanded not to obey you. Okay? And there are scriptures that state, hey, if you love your parents more so than you love me, you're not worthy of me. That's what Yeshua states in Matthew chapter 10, if you don't believe what I said there. I'm going to quote those scriptures next week, hopefully. But anyway, verse 3. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So children, if you want to live long in the land, sons and daughters, you better obey your parents. Now, in the end time, it says that the spirit of wickedness is going to be so great that it's going to be a common and, and popular prevalence around the world of children being disobedient to your parents. But you want to be different. Obey your parents. Now, here's a key scripture that has everything to do with the Elijah message. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So it's the the father's primary responsibility to teach their children and their sons and daughters the true ways of God. He didn't say mothers, even though the mothers do it too. But the father, that's his primary responsibility. Okay? All right, so Colossians 3, verse 21. And this is the key scriptures uh, here. It says in verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything. And, you know, parents that have twisted scriptures say, well, you're supposed to obey me in everything because of scripture. But what did I just quote earlier? Okay. And then I can quote Matthew chapter 10. If I have time, I'll quote that one too. Verse 22, Colossians 3, verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who, oh, not that, no. Colossians 3, verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children that not they become discouraged. Okay. Discourage, which is the total opposite of encouragement or being courageous. That not they be discouraged or disheartened or dispirited. Their spirits be broke through grief and trouble, and they become sluggish and unfit for business or despairing of having any share in the affections of their parents, disregard their commands, instructions, and corrections, and grow stubborn and rebellious. So fathers, when you're too hard on your children... How can you expect them to obey you? They ain't going to want to obey you. You're not going to give them hope. And let's look at what the word discourage means. Um, 
I had this here. I was going to talk about it. Let me see if I can find it here real quick. Is that one of the what the dictionary says in terms of uh, what courage means? Okay, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, I think it's the best dictionary in the world to go to, uh, it says to deprive of courage or confidence. Okay? So when you discourage someone, you take away their courage. Okay? Now, what does courage mean? Let's look at what courage means. Courage means mental or moral strength to venture, to preserve, to persevere, and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. So the antithesis of that scripture is to encourage or teach your, your sons to have courage, to be able to persevere, to stand up for righteousness. That's what being courageous is about, and that's what that movie is about. And that movie has everything to do with, I know, I don't have to ask him. I know that he had something to do with that movie being produced. And that movie, the budget for the movie was $2 million. It made $30 million, but that's not the point. The point of the matter is when, money start, when, when movies start making money like that, that means many people have seen it. And that's good. Many people have seen it, and they may not realize that they saw what um, – the Elijah message is all about is about reconciliation of fathers and sons. It's about reconciliation of the family. Fathers should treat their daughters with respect. They should care about their daughters. And it also has something in there in the movie I'm not giving away about uh, this father's relationship with his daughter. It, it just has everything in there that the Elijah message is really all about. Sure, it's about keeping the laws of God. It's about the Hebraic roots. Uh, it's about understanding that uh, salvations of the Jews. Yes, we understand that, but it also is about fixing this problem of the fatherless. That's what it's, it's about as well. Because if you don't fix the problem with the fathers, all of society will be destroyed. As I was explaining to my wife the other day, Satan knows that God is a father. He can't destroy the eternal father, but he can destroy earthly fathers. And he's been doing that for years. You know, and... We have to do our part through the Holy Spirit to prevent that from happening, and it's going to happen. God said so. The Elijah message is already here. I'm preaching it. Uh, it's being preached through this movie. Other people know about it. A few know about it, but it's prophesied for, to spread. It's going to be spreading around the world, because if it didn't, the whole world would be destroyed. The whole world would be destroyed. So that that's the, what was I going to really do, Shri? I was getting ready to quote a scripture. I forgot. I was getting ready to say something. But this Elijah message is very important, folks, and and uh, we need to, uh, to understand that. And I, I just hope that you understand what the message is all about now. And I'm going to talk about uh, Yochanan and John the Baptist or Yochanan the Immerser next week and what he preached specifically about uh, the Elijah message so you can understand it better. All right, so uh, with that, uh, it's not too much time I have left here. Uh, with that, uh, may God bless and keep you, and uh, God willing, I'll be available to speak to you next week.
Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. 